Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with Kevin Falcon, leader of the opposition in the BC legislature. He's the leader of BC United. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Kevin, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. Okay, let's start with some of the revelations we're seeing now about raises in the public service and the public sector, and especially for political staff at the legislature for for the government, right? So we're talking about chiefs of staff to cabinet ministers. What kind of raises did they get? Well, it's they got massive raises. We're talking about uh, you know up to seventeen percent. Uh, that's two raises in five months. Uh, for many of them, it'll be $17,000. I mean, this is well beyond what teachers and, and nurses have been receiving. And But what's worse than that, Mike, it's one thing to say, okay, we are going to give ridiculous increases to political partisan staff, friends and insiders. Uh, yeah. But the worst part is they won't disclose it. It's all done secretively. David Eby made sure that that information is not released publicly anymore. They won't disclose it. They wouldn't answer questions about it. And I think, you know, given the context, you just mentioned the young mom that's having to travel across the border. The fact of the matter is 50% of families in B.C. right now are $200 a month away from not being able to meet their family budgets. And in the context of that, to see this kind of um, absurdity in spending, following, you may recall, last year we had a a, a big, uh, you know, brouhaha with the NDP because they gave themselves retroactive pay increases, 30000 for the premier and up to 17000 for ministers. Uh, undeserved, by the way, that was by eliminating our requirement for balanced budget. Uh, you know, we had financial penalties in place if you didn't balance budgets, et cetera. So I, I just think that there's a pattern here that uh, demonstrates that, that, you know, David Eby and this group are out of touch when it comes to saying we're going to, you know, tighten our belts uh, just as British Columbians are. They're not even close to tightening belts. They took, they've taken the belt off and thrown it away. Okay, well, 17% raise is, is obviously pretty eye-popping for sure. Now, you have your own political staff at the legislature, right? Like, you've got a chief of staff. You've yep. got other political staffers. Have they yep. received raises? Oh, not, not even close to that. I think they may have got an inflation increase, but I'm not even sure about that, to be honest with you. I can, I can get that information for you, but... But certainly, we don't have those. You don't wait a sec. You don't know. You don't know how much of your own staff. I mean, you're complaining about the government staff getting raises, but you don't know how many. You don't know what the raise is for your own staff. Well, it's because they were so modest, Mike. And I mean that okay. sincerely. I'm not. I'm not beating around the bush. I'm just saying that it would have been two percent or less. Oh, oh, oh okay. Uh, let's talk about some of the the information we're seeing in the public accounts here, just released as well. This one jumped out at me too. The amount of money that's being spent on on government advertising and i want to get your take on this and let me play an ad here for you kevin now take a listen to this ad this is from the the government caucus budget at the legislature okay 
this is public money. This is taxpayers' money that paid for this ad. Have a listen. In the first 100 days in office, BC's new Premier David Eby is taking real action. Lots of it. Action to get more homes built. Action to improve health care with more doctors and nurses. David Eby, 100 days of putting people first. And he's just getting started. A message from your BC NDP MLAs. All right. Lots of action. Yeah, lots of action on, on public tax dollars being spent on partisan advertising, too. What do you think of that ad? Well, you know, that's so obviously partisan. It, it's actually, it, it's ridiculous. But look, I, I just have to say something, Mike. You know one thing I've been saying uh, since I've become leader. I've yeah. said this from the very beginning. This is a government of announcements and reannouncements and press releases. It is not a government of results. If you care at all about results, we're not seeing them. So they just, you, you're right, they've increased their PR spending by 14 million dollars okay that's on top of the 28 million they were already spending to promote what a great job they're apparently doing in government the problem is if you look at the results the results are terrible we've got the highest housing prices and and we've got the highest fuel prices in north america we've got the highest rents in canada we've got bc ferries that doesn't work they're bc housing management corporation that's supposed to be building the 114,000 promised affordable homes is a total fiasco it's chaos they've built only a fraction of those homes and yet, they'll keep pumping out all these ads. I just heard, in fact, before you came on, the education minister saying, isn't this great? We're going to be you know, announcing a new school in Surrey, and we'll be getting rid of portables. They said they were going to get rid of portables in four years. They've doubled the number of portables. They're now having to look at stacking portables in Surrey, uh, for goodness sake, because they're running out of room. So I just think, Mike, that disconnect between aren't we doing a great job kind of advertising and these announcements and reannouncements and what's really happening is what really frustrates people. Yeah, here's the thing. When I hear those ads, I mean, those drive me up the wall, too, because I just think, are you kidding me? Like, this is my money being spent on obviously partisan ads. The NDP should be paying for those ads, not the taxpayers of British Columbia, in my opinion. Here's the thing, though. Like, didn't you you guys did the same thing? I mean, when the Liberals were in power and you were a cabinet minister in the Gordon Campbell government, I remember writing columns in the province newspaper just ripping you guys for basically doing the same thing, spending the public's money on partisan ads. Okay, for, well, first of all, Mike, you go and find me any kind of partisan ad we ran that was anything close to that. I mean, come on. You know all governments do advertising, government advertising, of course, but it's yeah. got to be on a nonpartisan basis. There's information you do have to share with the public, and I don't even object when the NDP do that. They have to do that. That's, a, that's part of the job of government. You've got to inform people about what programs are out there, et cetera. Sure. No problem with that. But the ad that you just played is so overtly partisan that when I first heard those ads, Mike, I was I, I was absolutely convinced. Someone asked me about them. I said, no, 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 that'll be the NDP will be spending that out of their, you know, that's that's from their party. Those aren't uh, caucus ads you yeah. know, or, or, or government uh, taxpayer ads. And then I found out later they were. Yeah. Mike, I defy you to find an ad that we ran that's anything remotely as partisan as that. Uh, okay, let me ask you about the, let's go back to the pay raises right now, because we have saw these big pay raises go out for political staffers in, in the government. I know you've also been concerned about just the general sort of ballooning of bureaucracy in B.C. too, right? Like, how much has 100%. the civil service gone up under this government? The, we've seen a growth in uh, uh, full-time government employees of 36%. Uh, in the past six years, that's 137,000 uh, new employees. And look, Mike, I'll, let me just say this. I always say to people, okay, we've got a 36% improvement in government. You have to uh, increase in government employees. 
you have to have some government employees. You've got to hire some people in government. I get that. But show me where we've had a 36% improvement in any of the services government provides. Just anyone. And I have yet to find anybody that can actually point to something and say, well, that's gotten at least a third better. And the bottom line is there is no correlation between all the excess staff that they're hiring and the outcomes that we're actually getting. And I can tell you if you were running a business and you kept larding up your your employee base and we're getting worsening results every quarter, you're not going to be in business very much. Only in government can you get away with this kind of nonsense. And, and, you know, frankly, I think that's part of a pattern we see here is government spending like crazy, especially yeah. on their friends and insiders, as we're seeing here. And yet we're actually getting worsening results. So, so would pattern. you... Okay, so if you win the next election and you become the next Premier of British Columbia as a BC United government, would you then therefore be shrinking the size of the civil servants, civil service laying off public sector workers? Well, let me use healthcare as an example. You know, Adrian Dix goes around saying we've hired 30,000 new people in healthcare. Well, here's the problem, Mike. They are not doctors and nurses and the care aides that we need. They're hiring a lot more administrators, a lot more communications people. Um, I travel around the province all the time talking to frontline doctors and nurses, and they tell me all the same thing, that the administration and the bureaucracy has exploded. We've got 64 vice presidents uh, now in our healthcare system. You know, their average salaries are over a quarter million dollars a year high. Um, you know, next door in Alberta, they've got seven. Like, I, I just mm. think that, so if you're asking me, will we be tightening our belts? Absolutely, because this isn't our money. No such thing as government money. This is taxpayers' money. They send it to Victoria, and we have an obligation to be responsible with it. So, uh, you know, I would make sure that we're being responsible with people's money, especially at a time when they're struggling and having to drive across the border, doing everything they can to make ends meet. And it doesn't, frankly, help when they hear the government's giving massive raises to friends and insiders where they're, you know, increasing the budget that they're already spending $28 million a year advertising the British Columbians what a good job okay. they're doing. They raise that by another $14 million, and you know all of this, I think, is, is a pattern. It's not a good one. Let, let me ask you real quickly, just in the two minutes we got left here, this situation at Joffrey Lakes Provincial Park here, where you've got two First Nations, the Lillawat and the Kwatkwa First Nations, uh, have said they, have, they are shutting down public access to this, this park. Uh, the park apparently will be open this weekend for the long weekend, but then it will shut down again as a decision by these two First Nations. Who's in charge here? Is it the government running these parks, or it's First Nations? What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's, first of all, it should be the government. There's no question about that. Yeah. But what it suggests to you is that this has been a failure in government. They haven't consulted or talked to the First Nations at all. Um, but you cannot have a situation where you've got third parties shut, shutting down public parks, full stop. But it really suggests to me that there's a failure of the government to not reach out and properly communicate with these folks, recognize that they you know, have some... Uh, some issues that they want to deal with, work with them, you know, create the space so that they can do those things. But you cannot have a situation in the province of British Columbia where parks are being shut down by any third party. Full stop. Thank you for coming on today. No problem. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Every time I go to the supermarket now, I'm getting sticker shock. And especially when you get to the cash register, this happens to me every week now. Let's say you even just stop in after work or something. You're picking up a couple items for dinner or whatever. You know, I do this fairly frequently. And you get to the cash register. You're like, what did I spend $100 on? I, I got like one bag of groceries or like $80. What? Why is this so expensive? And then you start taking a look down the list of the stuff that you actually paid 
for some of these individual items, and it's unreal. The prices in the grocery store are unbelievable. And people are struggling. Like, people are struggling to make ends meet, especially when it comes to food prices, grocery store prices. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Brandy Dustin, standing by here. Brandy is a BC mom, and she has a young daughter at home. She's got a hardworking husband, and, and her families, like a lot of families, are struggling to make ends meet, especially when they go to the grocery store. I want to play a little clip here of Brandy's video on TikTok, which I, I encourage you to check out, on how she shops for groceries across the border in the United States, even with the exchange rate with the U.S. dollar, is it still worth it? Have a listen to this. I live out in the country, so I live 45 minutes away from the closest grocery station. However, I live next to the U.S. border, and the closest grocery store there is 15 minutes. So that is usually where I do most of my grocery shopping, even with the crappy exchange. According to my online, if I were to go in and shop and buy all this stuff, I would be paying 100 and like $60, so 117 Canadian to $160. So it is still worth it for me to go to the U.S. All right, let's discuss with Brandy Dustin. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Brandy, thanks for coming on today. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet, I appreciate it. And that was a, a really great video that you did. So let's talk about where you live, like j just generally. You live out in the Kootenays region of B.C., right? Yeah, I live in Roosville, so I'm close to the uh, Roosville border crossing. Okay, so we got a bit of a scratchy phone connection there. We're gonna we're gonna muddle through here. So, where, when you go cross the border to the United States, where do you go? What like what town do you go to in the U.S.? I go to Eureka, Montana. It's a little border town. Many people know it. Cause they flock down here for Kukanusa, the popular lake. <laughs> Eureka, Montana. Okay, that's a pretty cool name for a town. So, where do you go shopping there? What store do you typically go to when you go buy your groceries there? I go to Watson's Grocery Store is kind of their main store. They've got another little organic store and another one there, but I found the prices at Watson's seem to be the best. Okay, you've, been, oh, you've obviously been doing shopping around. So, so let's talk about this video, which has kind of taken off a bit here for you on TikTok here when you, when you do the comparator. How often do you go down there? Like, do you do all your grocery shopping pretty much in the U.S.? I do. I go down about three to four times a week. We also we ship a lot of our packages to their shipping outlet there, so I have to run down several times a week, but I do as much as I can down there. Yeah, and do you have a, a gas-powered vehicle? I do, and I okay. also gas my vehicle up down there because I save about... 40 to $60 by gassing it up down there. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was thinking that might be the case as well. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about let's talk about how much you're saving here because, you know, I know people that have done that used to do cross-border shopping runs, but I've heard from people saying, "Well, does it really make economic sense anymore with the dollar being the way it is and the exchange, the U.S. dollar exchange now, it doesn't seems to cut into a lot of your savings, but you found otherwise. Tell me, tell me how much you save here, even with the dollar exchange. So with the dollar exchange, I, I went on like the PC press online and pretended I was shopping in Canada at the same grocery store I would go to. Yeah. And it came to $160. And then, as you saw in the video, I got alcohol, so I added in. That was about $20 of alcohol. And then I guesstimate about $30 in gas. 
to drive 45, uh, I guess, a 90-minute round trip. So I saved myself about $80 Canadian. $80 Canadian on, on one grocery store run? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I don't blame you for doing this. Like, what do you think about, do, do a lot of your friends and neighbors do the same thing where you live? Where I live, yes, we're considered locals, so we yeah. go down many times, border guards know us really well, and you're usually allowed, like everybody on TikTok is saying, you're not allowed alcohol, you're not allowed alcohol, they usually give a small exemption, like a six-pack or something if you're going down for the day, because us being where we are, we don't have any amenities around us, that mm. is our local town and store. What about the groceries coming back across the border? Do you have to do you have to declare those or pay duty on them or anything? I declare everything. When I go down on the U.S. side, I tell them I'm going for groceries and gas. When I come back, I tell them I went to the grocery store and I got gas. I have all my receipts, and I declare down to the cent. So the bill in that video is 85.04. I tell them I have 85.04. And if they ask me, do you have any chicken, pork, meat, I tell them that. And do they, do they? Do you ever have to pay, like, duty coming back, or no? I have not had to. Since the right. borders reopened, I I can't remember doing it before the borders reopened, but, no, they have, they've been good, and just have a nice day, and through mm. I go. Speaking to Brandy Dustin, she's a BC mom who shops for her groceries across the border in the United States. We've often heard people say that, well, going across the border and spending your money there, that's bad for our economy here in BC. And I know you, I know you address that in your video. Like, what do you think about that? Because we, we often hear people say, shop local, shop local, support your local stores. What do you think of that argument? You know what? I hear that 100%, and I would love shop local we've always tried to around christmas time we try and support small canadian businesses yeah. but it has gotten too hard to do with the inflation it's kind of just a struggle and survive scenario more than a support canadian it's support whoever you can so you can support yourself yeah yeah okay last question for you brandy would, would you therefore say that you know times are tough right like would you say you and your your friends your neighbors your, are is everybody struggling with these prices how would you describe oh, it absolutely everybody's struggling i constantly hear like i couldn't afford this you know people trying to feed feed our kids healthy food and that you see in the video i'm grabbing easy quick stuff because i can't always afford to get healthy food and Everybody I talk to is struggling. Not any one person out there isn't. Brandy, I'm very grateful to you for spending some time with me here this morning. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about this today. Thank you so much. You have a great day. All right, let's talk about gambling on sports now. Sports gambling has absolutely exploded here in North America, across Canada, in the United States. And you watch any game, it doesn't really matter what sport it is. Man, you are just saturated with advertising. Bet on these games. Bet right now. Sign up and get your bonus. Sign up for these sports books. And the leagues are all in on it now. The leagues are doing deals with the sports books. The sports books are being named after stadiums. I mean, it's just incredible. Now, think about the advertising here. And some of the stars you see in these ads. Yeah, Wayne Gretzky pitching sports gambling. 
You got superstar athletes like Connor McDavid. He's in on it in some of these ads. Should that be allowed? I got Dr. Luke Clark standing by to discuss from UBC. In Ontario, they are now moving to ban sports gambling ads that use professional athletes, also putting restrictions on celebrities advertising sports gambling. Should British Columbia do the same thing? Let's have a listen to some of these ads here. Let's listen. Come on! Drain that three! Trying to practice here, Wayne. You need it. Yes! Slow down, I gotta make my picks. You wanna this win bet with me? Win bet. I like where your head's at, but Boston's not covering. You think Boston's gonna cover? Why, you know something I know? I went with Greg on this one. He has a whole system. <laughs> big payout, big payout, big payout. <laughs> Okay, you heard Gretzky there, you heard Connor McDavid, you heard Shaquille O'Neal there. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Luke Clark, Director of the Center for Gambling Research at UBC. Luke, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You bet. I appreciate this. Appreciate it a lot. This has grown so quickly and so big. How did all this happen? Is it just because gambling, sports gambling used to be illegal, now it's wide open? What happened here? Yeah, so um, it's been a fast-moving couple of years. Um, the, the first uh, step there, um, two summers ago in August, uh, there was a federal bill which um, uh, legalized single-event sports betting. So, so prior to that, the only uh, sports betting in Canada was uh, parlay betting, where you have to bet on uh, several matches at once. Um, right. uh, the, the more... Um, uh, I would say the more kind of uh, key step was that Ontario um, then in April last year privatized their um, whole internet gaming sector. Um, and th it's really that step that has driven the explosion of advertising. And um, the vast majority of the ads that we're seeing here in, uh, in BC are, are ads directed to Ontarians by Ontario-based operators. There's now about... Um, over 30 uh, gambling websites operating in that space. And it's not just sports, it's also online casinos and slots, which we we, we know pretty clearly to be um, you know, risky forms of, of gambling for gambling addiction. Oh, yeah, for sure. And especially for young people, too. Like when I see some of these ads and I see Connor McDavid or I see Austin Matthews, like these current NHL superstars pitching gambling, how much of that do you think is targeted to to young people, like to, to young, to even like the kids who maybe who may see some of these ads? Does that make a, a big impact on younger younger people? Uh, you know, absolutely. The the advertising yeah. regulations in on, Ontario um, uh, are intended to be directed to. Um, to, to adults and not to market to kids. But, you know, I think naturally kids are going to be driven to um, athletes and, and celebrities, their, their role models. And, and this is all part of a, of, a, of a wider concern where, you know, banning celebrities and athletes only kind of get, gets to, to, to one part of this around the, you know, the normalization of gambling within sports, which is what we're yeah. seeing at the moment, where these two things... Um, you know, it's it's like they kind of go go hand in hand, um, and and the you know the the development there is, you know, if if you care about the outcome of a match, you know, should you have money on it? I, I find that a very worrying um, development. 
Yeah, for sure. And we've talked about this issue on the show before. I was speaking to Luke Clark from UBC, director of the Center for Gambling Research there. I spoke on an earlier show to Carl Subban, who is the father of P.K. Subban, the NHL star. And he has started a campaign to remove these ads. He thinks this is this is a really bad development that gambling has gotten so big. He's especially worried the impact on, on younger people. Let's play a clip of him here. This is Carl Subban on an earlier show. Have a listen. We have some strong feelings uh, around the proliferation and content of these sports uh, betting ads, and especially when you see uh, these superstar athletes uh, in them. Uh, and, and they make gambling so enticing, especially to young people who love them so much. Yeah, so he's he's big concern there are these existing athletes and the impact they may have on children. You've already sort of touched on that and the appeal to, to younger people. The other thing I find a little weird or troubling about it, Luke, for, for your thoughts is I find it strange to see existing current athletes pitching gambling uh, when they're still playing, they're still they're still participating in these games. They, their performance on the ice or on the field can affect the outcome of this of these games, affect a ton of money that's bet on the games. Do you think that it just seems like I don't know, almost like an apparent conflict of interest here at, at the very least? What do you think of that? Well, you know, before the federal bill came in two years ago, there there had been concerns for many years that the sporting leagues were. Um, you know, uh, uh, against um, uh, expansion of sports betting for, you know, for those kinds of reasons, the effects that it could have on the the integrity uh, of sports. Um, I'm not aware of any um, cases in, in Canada yet um, around those integrity issues, but they've certainly happened um, in, in other countries. I'm, uh, I'm from the UK myself and um, uh, with soccer uh, in the UK, there have been uh, various um, cases of um, yeah athletes. Uh, you know, with with you know, we we see quite high rates of gambling problems among um, athletes um, in the sports sector, and um, uh, we, we can see cases of uh, you know um, match fixing. And yeah, so on. yeah, for sure. And I think that the biggest, of course, concern is addiction, gambling addiction, especially for younger people. Let's play another clip here. Carl Subban here on an earlier show. Uh, raising concerns about that. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. I don't know one young person over 12 who does not have his own cell phone. And they have access to these online gambling stuff. And then you have this superstar telling them, it's okay, it's as easy as scoring goals. Well, (laughs) I don't know how many gamblers are winning as, uh, as many times as Wayne scored goals in the NHL. Yeah. Yeah, so I think he, uh, he he's really passionate on it and feels that this should be cut way back or the advertising should be restricted. Let's talk a little bit about what they've done in Ontario here, Lou, because this is very interesting where Ontario has banned the use of professional athletes in these these ads, these commercials. That's very interesting. Also putting some restrictions on celebrity advertising for sports gambling. What do you think of that? Do you think that's a right move? Should other provinces do it? Maybe we should do it here. Well, um, the, a lot of the advertising, the, the the gambling ads that we're seeing here during televised sports are Ontario-based operators. So it, yeah. it, it's a, it's appropriate that Ontario um, took uh, that that step, and um, you know it. In, in some ways, it's the most visible uh, issue, but um, you know, banning celebrities in those adverts 
is not um, necessarily going to reduce the the volume of the ads, and yeah. it's not necessarily going to affect you know um, sponsorship of um, gambling of, of of sports by gambling operators. And I think just when you when you watch a lot of sports. Um, now, uh, the the extent to which you know the commentary and the pundits are are bringing a lot of kind of gambling terminology uh, into the broadcasts as well, like yeah. talking about you know how a particular play affects the you know the spread and things like that, which um, is is all part of this same movement. So um, in some ways. Uh, I think Ontario have addressed, you know, the maybe the loudest voice, but um, it would have been. Uh, I, I still think we need to kind of zoom out and think about what's going on here. Yeah, and so what do you think might be some more effective reforms that they could Im- put in place? Like it seems to me that the the horse has left the barn here to a great degree. You've got all these powerful sports leagues are on board with this now. We're talking billions and billions of dollars on the line here. So it it sounds like there's no going back here. I mean. It, it seems like this is here to stay, but could it be regulated more effectively just to, you know, prevent, especially prevent people from getting addicted? Yeah, like a number of countries in Europe are, are really um, cr- cracking down on the on the advertising in particular. Um, Belgium um, this summer has introduced um, a full ban on all uh, gambling um, advertising, uh, you know, akin to wow. what we have uh uh, tobacco say so um you know countries this is one of the reasons why you know i i find um gambling so interesting because you know d- different countries different jurisdictions are grappling with this in you know in their own ways um uh you know and as well as the tv ads um if you start thinking about how that kind of thing works online there's also a lot of um more kind of subtle forms of marketing uh, around um, social media and um, uh, you know, if you register for these gambling um, apps, uh, they can then send you, uh, you know, emails and inducements and notifications to your phone. So part of the concern here is about youth uh, without, without doubt, but the, the other side to this is the effect of, of all of this advertising and marketing on people who gamble and um, maybe people who are having gambling problems where it is very um, difficult to engage in sports at all without being uh, bombarded by this material. Yeah, that is for that is for sure. Luke, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let's talk about Canada's official residence for the Prime Minister. And lots of countries have got official residences for their leaders. Think about the White House in the United States. Of course, the United Kingdom, you got 10 Downing Street. Here in Canada, we've got 24 Sussex Drive. That has been the official residence of the Prime Minister for a long time, at least on paper. Not in reality, though, for the last several years, though, because the place has just fallen into such disrepair uh trudeau and his family do not live there now the the condition of 24 sussex drive right now is basically a a tear down it's full of mold and rats and to even repair it or fix it seems to be out of the question now the government considering just starting over cbc reporting this week one of the options on the table is build a new official residence, maybe even somewhere else, not even per- perhaps in that location, maybe a completely new location. 
But 24 Sussex, the idea of repairing that structure seems to have fallen off the table. And I got Stefan Novakovic standing by to discuss here. Have a listen to first to Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader here. He was asked about this, what he thinks about rebuilding maybe a new official residence, repair 24 Sussex Drive, build a completely new residence. What does Polyev think about that? Here's what he said. The federal government is seriously considering options to build a brand new official residence for the prime minister. What do you think of this move, and what would you do with the residents if you become prime minister? Well, I think that this is the this will be of, of my list of priorities. This will probably be the last. Um, we don't need a new home for the prime minister. We need a new home for working class Canadians. My focus is on housing Canadians, not housing the prime minister. Okay, so he says this will not be a high priority for him if he becomes the prime minister. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Stefan Novakovic, senior editor at Azure Magazine. That is a magazine dedicated to Canadian architecture. Stefan, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be on the show. Yeah, you bet. It's it's good to talk to you about this issue again. And when we can, let's talk first of all about the condition of 24 Sussex Drive right now. Like, do you think that that this building could be repaired or saved in any way? Like, I suppose if you have an endless supply of money, anything is possible. But how bad of how bad a shape is that house right now? Well, it's 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 pretty darn bad, Mike. I mean, yeah. uh, they've outlined. Uh, uh, a budget of up to $40 million and probably more than that, to be honest with you, to really rebuild the thing properly. It's full of mold. Uh, there's a huge vermin infestation. Uh, oh. You know, basically everything that could be going wrong with that house has gone wrong, especially because it's actually been, uh, you know, empty for the last eight or nine years. Justin Trudeau as prime minister has never actually um, inhabited uh, the house. On top of that, this new report uh, that the CBC uh, was covering this week uh, outlines that you know uh, the prime minister's residence really will require a lot of additional security measures, and that mm. this old house in particular isn't particularly well suited to adding those. So when you sort of add all that up, what becomes pretty clear is that uh, I don't think we'll ever see a prime minister of Canada living again in that house. Now, whether it could be, you know, maybe uh, saved or adapted into some other purpose if the prime minister moves elsewhere, now that that might be possible. Yeah, but it sure. In seems everyday like, terms, this thing's a teardown. Yeah, for sure. It, it seems like the writing is on the wall pretty clearly now that the idea of rebuilding it or repairing it seems to have seems to be a non-starter here right now, especially with concerns around security in that in the structure as well. So it sounds like, feels like the, the final nail in the coffin there has been driven in for 24 Sussex Drive. So I guess the next question is, well, if not that building, then which, then which building? So there's talk about building a completely new official residence for the prime minister, but maybe they would build it somewhere else. It might not even be at 24 Sussex Drive again. Maybe they'd build it somewhere in another plot of land, right? Yeah, they seem to have been discussing that. It looks like the government's already been scouting uh, a whole bunch of plots of land in sort of in and around central Ottawa in which to do this. I think that one of the issues they identified with this site, even if they do um, tear the current building down, is that it's pretty close to the road. So I think they're looking for something a little bit more isolated, you know. 
Stefan Novakovic, Azure Magazine. We're talking about 24 Sussex Drive. So, yeah, when we when you were just to pick up on what you were saying, Stefan, about whether they could build it somewhere else, I know there had been some talk as well about maybe they could have an official residence for the prime minister and combine it with office space, meeting space, like just completely a, a complete rethink and redo of the official residence and how it functions, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I that's sort of more how the White House or 10 Downing Street in the UK both function in that they both provide this sort of like day-to-day office for the prime minister and the president. And that means that it's not just funded or viewed by the public as being a big fancy house, which is sort of the issue we got in Canada. Right. And why do you think that this particular facility has been allowed to deteriorate to the sorry state that it's in right now? Is it just a lack of political courage to actually say, look, we've got to spend the money on this because the political optics of it are bad, right? Yeah, the political optics of it are bad. Now, I think, you know, we heard a little bit from the leader of the opposition a few minutes ago. And um, even though I disagree with his point of view, I think he's actually doing some really good campaigning on this issue. You know, he's calling for a house that's simple and reasonable, and he says it's the absolute bottom of his priority list. Now, I think to a voter, that sounds pretty good. You know, you don't want to be the prime minister and say like, hey, one of the things that's really high up on my agenda is renovating and rebuilding the my own expensive house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's sort of a structural problem with the way that this is done that, you know, I think the decision making really has to be taken away from the prime minister's office and sort of done at an arm's length basis, because otherwise no prime minister wants to be the one, you know, to push that button. Yeah, for sure. Do you think we actually even need an official residence for the prime minister in Canada? Because I've heard that argument, too. Why do we even need this? Well, if you look at other countries like, you know, you mentioned the White House, 10 Downing Street. Does Canada require an official residence for the prime minister? Should we have one? Well, I think um, even if the uh, office of the prime minister is located elsewhere, like it is, you know, here in Canada, there's a certain amount of official functions, you know, uh, state dinners, the receptions for dignitaries, for uh you know, visiting presidents and prime ministers, all those things tend to happen in the prime minister's residence. And because that's state business, that's public business, I think it necessitates a public residence. So I think for that reason, it's sort of a pretty pretty reasonable thing to say that uh, there ought to be a facility like this. In fact, even the uh, leader of the opposition, Mr. Poiliev himself, actually lives in a type of public housing because we have a, a public residence for the leader of the opposition too. Sure, yeah, he lives in Stornoway, and he has a staff there. I mean, I know he loves to talk about Justin Trudeau uh, and his personal driver and his staff at at, uh, the residence where he's living at now, but don't forget, Polyev has an official residence, too, at Stornoway. So, good to remember that. Stefan, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Let's talk about the breaking news here. We've heard this morning BC Premier David Eby here taking the unusual step of writing to Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, and pleading with him 
do not raise interest rates again. There, there's a lot of speculation that the central bank could hike the bank rate again next week in order to deal with inflation. Now, remember, the central bank trying to wrestle inflation down to 2% still continues to run a little hotter than that. So another potential rate hike looming next week. You got BC Premier David Eby saying, please, please do not do this. Do not raise interest rates again. Let's check in with Jim Stanford now, economist, Center for Future Work. Very pleased to welcome him back. Jim, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot here. What do you think of this move by David Eby? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. Uh, I I, uh, I think he's done the right thing. He's trying to, you know, make sure that the governor of the bank, uh, Mr. Macklem, is aware of the kind of human cost that is uh, unfolding before us uh, from these interest rate hikes that we've been experiencing for the last uh, year and a half. You know, we're already seeing, Mike, some of the financial costs. Uh, interesting news this week from two of Canada's major banks. They announced that they're setting aside huge amounts for future loan losses because they expect a large number of their uh, borrowers to be unable to repay the loans. Uh, so that, that and, and other economic evidence that these interest rate hikes are having a real painful impact. So for the premier to, you know, uh, correspond with the governor is an unusual thing, but I, I wow. actually uh, appreciate it. What would be the potential impact here of another rate hike a lot of people are already suffering with the rate hikes we've seen already if they if you if he raises the bank rate again next week what is the impact of that what does it do yeah well you know it's uh, if you've been beating your head against the wall and then you beat the head against the wall one more time then your headache is going to be that much worse and that's uh, exactly what will happen Uh, we have seen 10 interest rate increases in the last uh, year and a half um, and we haven't even felt the full impact of those increases uh, mike because it takes time for higher interest rates to filter through. You know, there are still a lot of Canadians who haven't had to face the music yet with a renegotiated mortgage. If you had a three-year term or a five-year term when this all happened, well, you haven't got that letter from your bank yet saying, come on down to the office, it's time to renegotiate, and by the way, get ready to pay. So even without another increase next week, we're still going to see more pain in terms of the uh, amount of interest that Canadians are, are paying and the number of Canadian households who are going to be in financial distress uh, as a result. Uh, Now, if we then have another increase, and I think that's a a good chance, then, of course, that just makes it all the worse. Okay, how bad is inflation running right now? Because it seems to me you mentioned there have been 10 earlier interest rate hikes to deal with inflation, and it seemed to be be working. Like, I think we peaked at around, what, a little under... 8%? 8%? You correct me here. How, how, how high did interest rate or how high did the inflation rate get? Yeah, you're right. Just over 8% last June. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Just over a year ago was the peak. And, you know, we went from a usual inflation rate of 2% up to 8%. Um, now it has come down a lot. Currently it's running at 3.3% year over year. Um, now most of the up and most of the down had nothing to do with interest rates. And this is the great mm-hmm. irony of this the situation. You know, the reason inflation took off after the pandemic was not because Canadians had too much money to spend and, and too much work. Uh, the reason inflation took off is because we had these incredible disruptions. We had supply chains that were broken. We had shortages of all kinds of things, semiconductors and new cars and building products. 
And we had the energy price shock and uh, obviously $2 a litre gasoline and all the other energy prices, which made great money for the oil and gas industry, but hurt the inflation rate. Uh, And uh, on top of that, we had companies that took advantage of that situation and say, look, people are desperate out there. There's shortages. This is my chance to increase profits. So all of those things contributed to the problem. Now, most of them are being fixed. You know, those supply chains uh, are being uh, repaired and most of the shortages are gone. You can buy a new car again. For a while, you couldn't and and so on. Uh, even energy prices, for the most part, have, have come down, but we've seen a little bit of a rebound re- lately. So both on the way up and the way down, there wasn't an obvious connection to the interest rates. And I, I wouldn't give the higher interest rates credit for the uh, progress that's been made reducing inflation over the last year. Um, even at 3.3%, that's still too high for the Bank of Canada's liking. They want it back to 2%. And they right. have a view in, in their mind that we have to do that as fast as possible. Otherwise, people will get used to 3% inflation and, and that will be locked in uh, forever. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of that view, but that's what they're thinking. And that's why I think uh, interest rate increase next week is probably going to happen. Okay, what is the risk here of of not like, what is the downside risk here? Like, if the Bank of Covenant says to David Eby, okay, okay, we're going to freeze interest rates where they are right now. We're not going to do the rate hike. We, we hear you. Uh, maybe he won't be the only premier who does this. Maybe we'll see other premiers stepping up and doing the same thing here in the days ahead. But if they do keep interest rates where they are and they do not raise them to deal with inflation, doesn't that risk inflation rising again and then you you need an even more a more painful correction later, and rent rent and rate hikes going up even higher down the road if we don't deal with it and nip it in the bud now. Yeah, that's uh, that's the argument that Mr. Macklem has been making. He said it's important yeah. to get it down to two percent, and the risk of not going quick enough would be longer term pain. Um, right. Again, I'm not sure of that. Uh, here's here's one interesting point: the interest rates themselves, Mike contribute significantly to inflation right now uh, via a couple of channels. Number one, the debt charges on mortgages mean that housing has become more expensive. Even though real estate prices have come down a bit, not much, but a bit, the cost of housing has grown because of the debt charges. And that has actually added to inflation. Uh, Our inflation rate would be almost one percentage point lower without those higher debt charges. Another way they're boosting inflation is through rents. Rents are going nuts, as you well know. And part of the reason is the high interest rates, which have increased, uh, obviously, debt costs for landlords. Uh, It also means more people are looking for rental accommodation because they can't afford to buy a house. And then on top of all that, you've just had a, a real significant decline in new housing construction because of high interest rates, which means you've got shorter supply when, in fact, we need more supply. So in all of those ways, ironically, higher interest rates are actually making inflation worse, not better. So holding the rate where it is for a while and just kind of seeing what happens and let the, you know, let the economy adjust a, a bit rather than taking another, uh, another crack at what, it, I think would be quite prudent. What about this precedent here that EB is setting here? I'm not sure I've seen this before where a premier, a, a BC, has written a letter directly to the Bank, Bank of Canada governor and telling him, what to do, or at least suggesting what to do on interest rates. Mm-hmm. Isn't Tiff Macklem supposed to be independent and, and not subject to this type of political pressure? What, what do you think of that? 
Yeah, I, I think it is interesting and it is unusual, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. First of all, this uh, so-called independence of the central bank is a bit of a fiction. Uh, the idea is that the federal government, which uh, owns the Bank of Canada and is ultimately responsible for the Bank of Canada, will not interfere with the bank on a day-to-day basis. But the federal government still sets the bank's marching orders and appoints the governor and has a five-year mandate uh, kind of a, a framework, they call it, uh, to guide the bank's actions. So the bank is not, strictly speaking, independent even from the federal government. But there's certainly nothing in that regime that says uh, provincial governments can't express their views. In fact, all kinds of stakeholders in the economy, including business associations and consumer groups and trade unions, have also expressed their views. So uh, I, I don't see any any uh, sort of violation of protocol in this uh, at all. I think uh, Premier Eby is correct in making sure that Tiff Macklemon is aware of the, oh. the pain that this strategy is creating on the ground level here in B.C., but in other provinces as well. Okay, we're going to follow this very closely, to say the least. Jim, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.